it's back to school time, and parents across North America are wasting millions of hours schlepping their children to and from school in cars. Here in Brooklyn, New York, where the streets are once again gridlocked with school drop-offs, every horn honk reminds us that life would be better if students could safely ride to school on bicycles. Fortunately, our friends at Cleverhood are here to help make that happen. Their rain capes and anoraks look cool, protect you from the elements, and are designed for people, including kids, who walk and bike. Cleverhood also donates 5% of profits to advocacy groups working to create safer, more livable, and equitable streets in cities across the country. For a 20% discount on Cleverhood products, go to cleverhood.com slash war on cars. Enter coupon code bike to school when you check out. That code is good for a limited time only. Again, that's cleverhood.com slash war on cars. Coupon code bike to school. Okay, again and again and again, we got to take this point up. Congresswoman Malaitakis, U.S. electricity is powered by natural gas and coal and fossil fuels, about two-thirds of that. If we go all electric, you're going to have to basically ratchet that up in order to power electric cars. Your final word. Absolutely right. Look, the Democrats have had a war on cars. Hey, welcome to The War on Cars. I'm Aaron Napperstack, and I'm with my co-hosts, Doug Gordon and Sarah Goodyear. It's really nice to be here. Yeah, it's great to be with you both. Welcome back, everybody. What Thank a summer. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. What a summer. Well, so, okay, it's September, which means summer is over. The kids are back in school. The cars and trucks are back out on the street here in beautiful Brooklyn, New York. And it is what we like to call honking season once again. So happy honking season. It's your favorite time of the year, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I am losing the most my mind. wonderful time. Yeah. <laughs> the, ca- the cars seem particularly angry this fall. The cars seem angry. Right now, someone's dashing off an email. The drivers, Aaron, the drivers seem angry. Yes, but you're right. No, it's bad. It's bad. The drivers do seem angry and who can blame them, right? I mean, I would be angry too if I were locked inside a metal box being forced somehow to pay thousands of dollars a month for the privilege of being frustrated and enraged uh, for several hours a day. I think you could have a lot of fun if you replace the word car with metal box and you just like start referring it to that. Like, let me through with my metal box. I need somewhere to put my metal box. I paid a lot for my metal box. Then you really see how crazy drivers can be. It's true. I love metal boxes. I find I have some like a kind of primitive impulse to want to appease the car gods when they get angry like this. I'm like, what can I do? What can I do to make them stop honking, to make them happy, to make them feel better? Is that the impulse that leads so many pedestrians to scurry through the crosswalk? I think so. I think we're appeasing them. It's yeah. true. We're, you know, exposing our under our soft underbellies to their fangs in, in a show of obeisance, you know. Wave at them. Oh, thanks for not running me over. Thanks for not killing me. But I simultaneously want to appease and then I get, I'm I'm like infuriated and enraged and want to like pummel them. I'm tempted to tell about my road rage incident yesterday, but I think I'm going (laughs) to avoid it. I mean, that's so tantalizing though, Aaron. I I mean, I think that all of our listeners would like to hear about your road rage incident. Okay, so yesterday I was walking, I was walking to the office and a car was pulling in to a parking spot, but decided that it wanted to park on the sidewalk. And so instead of just sort of waiting for me to pass before he 
took his parking spot on the sidewalk. He just sort of kept driving into me. And I was like, I was like, <laughs> what? I was like, what are you doing? And so like I walked by and I like I rapped on his window with my knuckles. Like, what are you doing? Like, I am walking here, you know, like like the movie. And um he rolls down his window and he starts yelling something at me. And I, and I was just like, and so I, I like got into his window with my head. Like I was, my head was fully in his car. And I said, you're driving on the sidewalk. Do you want to talk about it? <laughs> <laughs> and, and did he? He did not want to talk about it. <laughs> I, I doubt it. Yeah. I'm a rather large person. I was angry and he didn't want to talk about it. And, I, I love But I felt you- terrible. Like there was no satisfaction in this. It no. does not feel good. But no. I do love that you describe that as a road rage incident because, like, if someone was jamming their cart in the supermarket into your shins, right. you wouldn't describe that as a grocery aisle incident. <laughs> you would just describe that person as a sociopath yeah. and say that they shouldn't go grocery shopping when other people are there. And, I, yeah, this just an a- that's just an asshole. Yeah, was this sidewalk rage? I don't know. This the guy rage. was also like 75 years old. Mm. And I, I just was like terrifying an elderly person who was just clearly, you know, but he was also so entitled. He clearly also felt like I'm trying to drive on the sidewalk. You need to get out of my way. I need somewhere to put my metal box. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so this is basically our fourth anniversary episode. We're starting our fifth year of the war on cars. That's pretty good. It's hard to believe. It's amazing. Yeah. So Let's, you know, let's just go back to basics. For this episode, we've got no special guests. Uh, It's just the three of us chatting like old times. And we can start with our summers. You know, we all had interesting summers with travels and war on cars related moments. So who wants to begin? I'll begin. I, I went to Europe this summer because my father lived in Spain and... And he was dying, and I went to see him, and then he he has died. He died a week ago, so that's been kind of rough for me. But while I was in Europe, there were two main parts of my trip that that were really relevant to the war on cars. And one was I I walked from the coast of France inland into the Pyrenees, and I was walking for six days. How how far is that? I don't know. I walked, I was walking on average between 10 and 16 miles per day. Wow. So I covered a lot of miles and I was all in this one region of the Western Pyrenees, the Basque country of France. And what was really interesting to me was later looking at the map on a big map of France and seeing how small the region was that I had been walking around in. But during those six days, it was like the most expansive universe. You know, I went from mountaintops to farmland to villages. It was all beautiful pastoral landscape, very well preserved in the European way, where they put a high priority on preserving traditional farmland and villages. And that was a really beautiful experience. There's a lot of open space as well. And what really struck me was that there was within this very small region that you could drive from one end of it to the other in a couple hours, I found an entire universe that I could have spent months exploring. And that way that walking changes the scale of your experience of the world and puts it on a human scale and makes everything so much richer and so much more interesting 
than it is when you're driving past it was something that I experienced on a cellular level during that walking time. So I really am very grateful that I had that time because it really helped to refresh my perspective. The other relevant thing that I experienced when I was in Europe was very different. I was in Milan, which is, of course, one of the continent's most modern and sophisticated cities uh, and most affluent cities. And the thing that really struck me when I was there was that there were so many people, first of all, on bicycles, because they really used the pandemic to improve their bicycle network. And according to bicycle advocates that I've read in Milan, it's a total transformation of how many people are riding bikes. And certainly you saw dozens of people riding bikes to work in the morning, right. doing all of their and travel. They, and, and am I correct? They really, they really transformed it during the pandemic, right? Like they went from like soup to nuts, total overhaul of city streets for the pandemic. Is that right? Or? Well, I'm not sure about that. I will say that there is lots of good bike infrastructure there, but it's not visibly much better than New York, for instance. But there is a very different attitude from the drivers on the street toward people on bicycles and people on micromobility devices of various kinds. It's just much more respectful. Everything moves at a slower pace, and people seem to just sort of accept that you let everybody go in their turn and everybody's flowing together. It doesn't feel adversarial. But even more than the bicycles, what struck me about Milan was the number of very small cars and sort of ATV-like kind of motorcycle tripod things and of all different kinds. Like there wasn't one type of these things that really dominated. There were also a lot of e-scooters and e-bikes. But you saw these smaller cars. And I just, you know, it's going back to the smart car, which was supposed to be this revolution that kind of never played out in the United States. But apparently it's still playing out in Europe. And a lot of these were electric vehicles. And they were everywhere in these very high-end affluent neighborhoods in Milan. And you saw these very well-dressed Milanese businessmen going to work in the morning on their little you know, electric motorcycle slash something else. I'm not sure what to call it. And it was just, you know, you think of New York and how much people complain about parking. And then they insist on driving vehicles that are 22 feet long. Like, right. y'all could fit a lot more of your cars. If you had smaller metal boxes. If you had smaller yeah. metal boxes, you could fit more of them. Instead, you just are insisting on making your metal boxes much bigger and bigger and bigger. The people in Milan would like to tell you that you can have a smaller metal box and still be really rich and look great <laughs> yeah. and feel powerful yeah. and have less metal box to park. Right. And display your status to yes, everyone else around you. Exactly. With your, but with maybe with your nice, with clothing, nice clothing instead yes. of like your giant metal box. Exactly. Okay. So Sarah, first of all, sorry about your dad. Thank you. Doug, you also had travels and death in the family too? Yeah. Uh, I guess I'll start with the bad news first. Yeah. My grandmother, Miriam Gordon, born 1926 on the Lower East Side on Sheriff Street in Manhattan. She died this summer. She died actually just a week and a half ago. And, uh, you know, she was a major force in my family's life. And I'm, I'm 48. She was 96. So you do the math. She was 48 when I was born, the first grandchild. So yeah, just a huge, huge part of my life, my entire life. I talked to her every week. 
She lived in her latter years up in the Bronx in a the, what was called the Hebrew home for the aged when a long time ago, I think it's got a different name now. Uh, she lived mostly independently up until the end. She and I would talk frequently about how much she liked where she was. She liked you know the other people. She was cared for well. She had her own apartment, so she lived somewhat independently. But she hated where she lived because she, for her whole life, she worked up until her late 80s. She was around young people, and she sort of like hated the isolation there. So that was kind of like war on cars related, you know, the, the way that we age in this country and how small her world got at the end. So that was kind of sad. So, yeah, that was that was a, a tough end to the summer for, for me and my family and, and my kids. It's their, their great-grandmother. The polar opposite of all of that is that we went to Disney World at the very <laughs> beginning of uh-huh. the summer, which I actually have great memories of going there with my, my grandmother, my grandparents. Uh, but we went with my in-laws, my mother, and my kids. So the, the oldest people we know, <laughs> you know, and, and the youngest people we right. know. And I'm not going to lie. I had a great time. I'm not ashamed. I, I, I love, I love going we, there. We don't expect you to be ashamed. No, <laughs> you know, the thing about, the thing about going to Disney, the, my feeling about it, and there is a war on cars angle here, which I'll get to, which is that you can't be a snob. You know, it's not like you can go to New York and be like, oh, you plebes going to Times Square. I'm going to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. See you tonight for dinner. You just have to go with it. And I just went with it and I just had a great time. So I'm now down a very deep rabbit hole because there are tons and tons of fascinating books about the urbanism of Disney World. And lots of people have written about this. We, we've probably talked before about how Americans like spend all this money to go to places where they can walk. You know, they've got something like the 20th largest transit system in the United States. Their bus system is the same size as St. Louis's bus system. For me, I was fascinated by all of these wealthy people because you have to have money now to go. It's really expensive. Just getting on the bus in the morning and going to the Magic Kingdom or Epcot or whatever. People who probably would never take the bus back at home. There's lots of sociological reasons for that. It's very expensive. It's essentially like, you're living in a high-tax state where the price of admission. But I read a really great book called Married to the Mouse by Richard Fogelsong, which I totally recommend. It's all about Orlando's relationship with Disney. So expect some War on Cars episodes related to Disney World, perhaps, in the future. I think there's a a lot we could do. Like a six-part series. Oh, there's tons of fascinating stuff. You know, Epcot was supposed to be this planned experimental community of tomorrow where people would live car-free, and that's what the monorail and the people mover would move people around, and the theme parks were just supposed to be like one anchor on one end. So yeah, had a great time, but I was the guy, instead of taking pictures with Mickey Mouse, was taking pictures of like the ferry <laughs> and the bus <laughs> and, and the, the Skyliner, their gondola system. So Disney, if you see any uh, banned cars stickers up and around, you know, Main Street, USA. <laughs> you know, they don't even sell chewing gum in the theme parks there so you, because you they you don't want try. that kind of stuff happening, you know, graffiti or anything. I didn't even try. First of all, like, you know, yeah, why do it there? They've already banned cars. Yeah, they've already banned cars on Main Street. It was the safest, most pleasant car-free experience I've had in quite some time. So that was my, like, you know, great start to the summer, crappy end to the summer. Yeah. All right, and what about you, Aaron? Well, so my death in the family was uh, my uncle Michael Crapon, who he was a pretty amazing guy. He uh, is my mom's younger brother, and he ran this thing called the Stimson Center. So his life's work was dedicated to nuclear disarmament. Wow! So if there has not yet been a nuclear war between India and Pakistan, 
Uncle Michael might get some of the credit for that. You know, we'll never know. That's the downside of that kind of, of, of trying to prevent things. <laughs> right. You know, it's like, did, did he prevent the nuclear war or not? We have no idea. But uh, he was an awesome guy. And so we got to visit him in Charlottesville, Virginia around Memorial Day. So he was still, you know, he was, he had all of these different cancers. So he, he kind of decided he was like terminally ill. He's like, I'm done trying to treat this. So we, you know, we got to like take the kids down to Virginia and, visit him. And then later in August, we were back for, you know, the inevitable um, memorial service stuff. So yeah, so that, that was rough, but we got to ride e-scooters in Charlottesville. <laughs> <laughs> There's always an upside. There's always, There's an always upside. a war on cars angle. <laughs> There's always a war on cars angle. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, actually I will. So I will say the, um, the takeaway from the Charlottesville e-scooter thing was that they are speed governed and geofenced. You know, Charlottesville has this famous um, pedestrian mall. It's actually where that crazy white nationalist march took place a few years ago. And one of the interesting things is that we, we had all our kids and family on e-scooters and we're cruising around downtown Charlottesville. But as soon as the scooter starts scooting up the hill to the pedestrian mall, you just lose power. You know, it's like, it just powers down and you can't go any further. And at first I was like, oh, damn, like, did this just run out of batteries, you know, on me? And and then I realized, no, like, they had actually just geofenced the pedestrian mall, which, you know, you think about the irony of Heather Heyer being run over by, like, a Dodge Charger, Challenger, whatever stupid muscle car that guy was driving. Like, the muscle car was not geofenced, right? right? Like, that person could actually drive directly across the pedestrian mall. But me and my children on our scooters were actually like stopped from driving on it. And so, you know, it just raises the question for me, as always, like, why aren't we putting this technology in cars? It's just such a, we have the technology, yeah. it's a no-brainer. We need to also put the technology in white supremacists. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you are geofenced from <laughs> big border. They just right they get close to the thing and they yeah. go Ooh. planet Earth. The border looks like the map of the United States. <laughs> anyway, right. Stay out. But oh, so yeah. our real um vacation y trip this summer though was to Quebec City. We sent the kids off to summer camp and then my wife Joanne and I we went up to Quebec City, which I'd never been to been to Montreal. Quebec City is really cool. I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but we have an ancient European walled city in North America. <laughs> but one of the things that makes it wild, though, is that you've got this like truly ancient, like almost medieval walled city, you know, overlooking like this strategic St. Lawrence Seaway passage, which you can like tell immediately like, oh, yeah, this would be like really important to have a big fortress and walled city like overlooking this place that's like completely giving you access to the center of North America. But then you're like, so you're walking around these beautiful streets and they have an amazing bike share system. Everything is e-bikes. The e-bikes were in great state of repair. The docks were available. And then you start to sort of like walk out of the core of the city and all of a sudden there's just like, what is that Ford F-350 doing here? <laughs> like, why is that in the ancient walled city? Right. That doesn't belong here. And then, so it's kind of this very bizarre mix of like North America and like medieval Europe. Mm. Very much squashed up next to each other. So well, that was my summer. So there have been highs and lows and, and we're all still standing. And what's really kind of crazy is that the whole time that we were doing all those things the war on cars 
not the podcast, but the war on cars was apparently raging unchecked. Right. And we will get to that after the break. Did you know Rad Power Bikes just reached half a million riders? And sure, a lot of those people are using their bikes for commuting, for taking the kids to school or running errands, but they're also visiting friends, heading to the beach or a park, going to the library, picking up pizza, going to a concert or the movies. You know, all the stuff people do by car. It's just that with a Rad Power bike, they're having a lot more fun than being stuck in traffic. So whatever your reason for riding an electric bike, you can visit radpowerbikes.com slash waroncars and check out the latest deals from North America's largest e-bike brand. What's your reason for riding a Rad Power bike? Again, that's radpowerbikes.com slash waroncars. Okay, so... One of the things we have here at the War on Cars is a special War on Cars Google News alert, and it seemed to be particularly lively this summer. Oh, I would say I got something, if not every day, multiple times per week this summer with the phrase War on Cars in some news items somewhere in the world. So the first one that came across our radar was by a British writer, an opinion columnist named Guy Birchall. The headline is, The War on Cars is a War on Ordinary People. Greens seem blissfully unaware that cars are a necessity for most Brits, which I just love. Like, what? Everybody knows cars are a necessity for most people. Come on, who are we arguing with here? But that was the first one that kind of popped up back in May. Right. It's like such an avoidance of the actual argument, which is like, wouldn't it be good in some ways to make it less of a necessity? It's like anti-smoking activists seem to be unaware that people are addicted to smoking. <laughs> yeah, we're aware. We're aware. This is a problem. Yeah. War on cars on the march in Great Britain. What else? Okay, Aaron, you are, you are in Quebec. There is one from Canada by a writer named Philip Cross, and the title is, In the War on Cars, the Suburbs Strike Back. Again, here's the subhead. Only the very naive think we will soon end our dependence on autos. Uh, yes. Again, I don't think we're doing this anytime soon. I've been doing this for a long time. Aaron, you've been doing this for longer. <laughs> right. Sarah, you've been doing this for a long time. I am not so naive as to think that, oh, yes, tomorrow we'll all just lay down our car keys on our kitchen table and walk outside and get on our bikes. Yeah. In fact, I would describe myself more as disillusioned than naive. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> like, Weathered. Yeah. Mm. yeah. I think we know how hard this is going to be to like transform this system. It's just so... Yeah. Who's naive about it? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, right. Like, I, I think naivete is not my problem. I think despair is my problem. Right. <laughs> like, yeah, a, a lot of these articles all have the same thing. It's like, you know, businesses depend on cars and trucks for their deliveries and uh, old people and, and the disabled require cars for their transportation needs. Like, yes, yes, we know. Right. We know. It's like, dude, I fought for Sharrows in 1998. <laughs> yeah, right, <laughs> right, right. Like, and we were happy when we got them. Yes. It took me two <laughs> years to get one bike corral in front of my children's school. I'm aware. We're not naive. Of what we're up against. All right. So that was, that was, uh, Philip Cross in the Financial Post. Then there was one from Colorado from the Gazette. Sarah, you have some thoughts on the author of this piece, which is titled Perspective, Losing the War on Cars. Right. But the author of this piece, Randall O'Toole, that's a name that will 
cause a tremor of fear in anyone who's been doing this work for a long time because this guy has been putting out bad takes on a very regular basis for decades. His thing is basically that waging war on cars is, you know, waging a war on the economy and cars are, have gotten so much better and 55,000 people a year used to die in car crashes, but cars have gotten better so now it's 45,000. Like 48, 42,000 people. Um, right. So I don't know. I mean, Doug, maybe you could help me here. The article is premised on statistics in Denver and the surrounding area. And for example, you know, he says in 2000, 8.4% of workers in the city of Denver took transit to work. While the wider Denver Aurora area, the figure was 4.8%. And, and you see this come up all the time. Like only 1% of people bike in New York or only... X tiny percent number of people rely on the bus in Los Angeles or whatever. It's like, yeah, and we should improve that number and improve service and make them more frequent and make bike lanes safe so that we get out of the single digits and move yeah. into bigger numbers. Absolutely. The, the fact that it is currently a low number of people doing something just seems like the silliest of arguments. Yeah, what I, what I find fascinating about Randall O'Toole and his ilk are they kind of make these arguments like, you know, the market wants cars. In our innate natural form, we want cars and here's all the evidence for that. And therefore we shouldn't support transit. But it's like, they're kind of looking at, you know, this world we've built since World War II, this kind of automobile sprawl environment and all the highways we've subsidized and all the housing and far off rural places that we've subsidized. And they're saying like, look, this is the natural thing that people want and we should just keep building more of that and it's all ostensibly for this kind of libertarian ideology that allows people to choose but what they're essentially arguing is that there should be no other choice but to live in this kind of automobile sprawl environment that we've been building for 60 or 70 years i want to go back to the headline which is losing the war on cars and i i guess my question is, losing the war on cars, is he thinking that that means that we, the war on cars people, are winning? Or does that mean that we, the war on cars people, are losing? I can't uh, quite tell what he confusing. thinks. His, his writing was so enthralling to you that you did not <laughs> stick around to the last paragraph where he says, the war on the automobile is over. The automobile and those who use it won. It is time for those fighting this war to recognize that they should instead put their efforts into making automobiles and highways safer, cleaner, and more fuel efficient than ever before. One of the ways to do that is to build new, safer roads that can relieve overall traffic congestion. So, yes. Oh, so thank you for listening. This will be the last episode of The War on <laughs> oh, Cars. Yeah, we're, we're gonna, I'm, I'm actually switching over and I'm going to start doing PR for highway construction companies because that's the way that we can really improve society. But the biggest person out there claiming there's a war on cars is someone here in New York City. It is Republican Congresswoman Nicole Maliotakis. I believe she's the lone Republican in the New York City congressional delegation. That's correct. Right now. Yep. And she represents Staten Island and a tiny part yeah, of, tiny of, sliver Brooklyn. of Brooklyn. Yep. But she has been using the phrase war on cars so much that she either owes us royalties or we're going to have to just give her a little piece of our uh, Patreon earnings, I think. <laughs> Please, Congresswoman, send us your Venmo. <laughs> Everyone donate to Patreon so we can send checks to Nicole. No, no, no. 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 So what's going on? Why? What is she saying and why is she saying it so much? 
So as some people might know, New York is hopefully, maybe, possibly on the verge of implementing congestion pricing, a toll that drivers would have to pay to enter the central business district of Manhattan, basically 60th Street and below. And the estimates for this toll based on kind of MTA studies are anywhere from $9 on the low end to $23 on the high end. It seems very unlikely that the $23 version will actually happen. This is causing the more car-dependent parts of the tri-state area, people who live in them, the electeds who represent them, to freak out. Basically saying that this is a tax on working people, all the stuff that you hear. And Congresswoman Maliotakis has just been out there hammering away that this tolling plan is a war on cars, all parts of the, the Democratic war on cars. So in this first clip, we hear the Congresswoman grilling Transportation Secretary Mayor Pete Buttigieg on Capitol Hill back in July. Uh, thank you, Mr. Secretary, for being here today. I want to talk about um, this administration and New York City's latest scheme when it comes to the war on cars. Um, this is a pure cash grab, and it is the congestion pricing plan that was passed by the New York State Legislature um, and signed by our governor and supported by the mayor, but uh, I'm certainly opposed. I just want to say that when she talks about a cash grab, it's really important to remember where the money from congestion pricing is going. It's going to help shore up the MTA, the transit system, the subway system that is in dire need of both capital and operating revenue, and that without that system, the city of New York would collapse inside of two weeks. And all of the people that she says need to drive around would be in a completely dysfunctional hellscape whose economy had collapsed. <laughs> sort of like it is now, but yes. Well, like, okay, <laughs> yeah. even more so. Right. No, but, I mean, but it should almost go without saying that a, a large number of her constituents take the Staten Island Ferry and then connect to the subway in lower Manhattan to get right. to their jobs, let's say, in midtown Manhattan. So this would benefit them. Right, for non-New Yorkers, I mean, we should probably just explain to our listeners, like the, the congestion pricing fee would only cover the very core of lower Manhattan. So it's the, the part of not just New York City, but all of North America that is the most transit rich place, you know, on the entire continent and also has a free connection, a free ferry, like a totally subsidized ferry that Nicole's own constituents on Staten Island get to take back and forth that connects you directly to our transit system. But I think it's important to say that even if you choose to drive, even if you're affluent enough to drive and you have to drive for some reason, that your ability to drive exists only because all those other people are taking the subway. Yes, so millions like, you of know, people. Like, there is no universe in which every single New Yorker can go where they're going in a personal motor vehicle. That just like cannot happen. So if she wants her people to be able to do that, other people need to be able to take the train so that there's room for them to do it, and we need to pay for the train so that it doesn't stop running entirely. Look, and I, I, this is a back-to-basics episode for us, so we're being a little New York-specific, but I do think this has national implications, right? Because congestion pricing exists in London. It exists, uh, I think, in Milan. It exists in Stockholm. It Singapore. exists in Singapore. But, you know, when New York does something, like put a bike lane on the Brooklyn Bridge, you know, bike lanes exist on other bridges. But when New York does something, it has implications for the rest of the country because our media is based here for the most part. And so this this pushback against congestion pricing, I think, is really important for the national transportation discussion, because if it fails, 
which is, you know, not likely it's law. It's supposed to happen, but it could still fail. That is going to be a big problem for when Chicago thinks they want to do something like this or activists in Boston or San Francisco or any city wants to add a toll somewhere. They'll just point to New York and say, see, it didn't work there. And they've got great transit. What are we going to do here in, you know, Boston where the tea is falling apart? And, And I think, you know, one of the really interesting things here is the way in which the quote unquote war on cars is being turned into kind of one of these national culture war issues now. And I think that is part of what Representative Maliotakis is doing here is she's really putting this issue front and center as a kind of, you know, Democrats versus Republicans issue for the next couple of elections, at least. And we're seeing hints of that more and more on the kind of right wing talk shows like Tucker Carlson and and these kinds of guys are making city versus suburb slash rural place into a kind of core issue of this, you know, national debate, which could be good in some ways to have these issues finally being covered, but the way in which U.S. politics works is probably not going to be good. It's probably going to be bad. Yeah, <laughs> probably going to be. Yeah, stupid. and I mean, we saw that in the 2020 election, right, when Trump and many of his proxies were fixated on single-family zoning yep. and the attack on the suburbs and the the sort of the integrity of the blissful single family lifestyle that I think that was the beginning of, I agree with you, this is going to be a bigger issue in the next couple of election cycles than we've seen before. And yes, it's very gratifying to have people talking about it and to start thinking about these things that we've thought about for so long, but it's also scary. So, Aaron, you know, you were saying that this is kind of turning into a culture war thing with Republicans on one side and Democrats on the other. And maybe that's good. Maybe that's terrible. Probably that's terrible. <laughs> uh, but I, I'd like to point out uh, that this is a bipartisan opposition to, uh, to congestion pricing. There are certainly lots of support from within the city among Democrats, but there are Democrats like Representative Josh Gothheimer in New Jersey who is representing drivers there. So like a lot of things, I think also housing too, where some of the staunchest opponents of affordable housing developments or really any housing development that isn't a single family home tends to be, you know, white, wealthier, often left-leaning, mm-hmm. you know, people who have the like, everyone's welcome here signs in their front <laughs> in their front lawns. Uh, those people tend to be Democrats. So yeah, urbanism for really, bipartisanship. it really scrambles the uh, normal political yeah. categories in some ways. Absolutely. Okay, so we've got one more Nicole Maliotakis clip for you here. This is her testifying at the MTA's congestion pricing hearing on August 25th. You know, like a lot of these transportation projects, there are many public hearings and meetings. What's particularly weird, though, about this set of public hearings and meetings is that congestion pricing has been, this process has been going on for like 15 years now. You know, so there it went through New York City Council and there were tons of public hearings and meetings. And then it went, you know, it got vo- approved and then it got kicked up to Albany to the state legislature and they voted it down the first time. They didn't actually vote. They just secretly killed it. But it finally got pushed back up again to Albany and they approved it. Anyway, so it's all approved. Like it's supposed to happen. It's the law for congestion pricing to happen. But now the MTA has to do a bunch of public hearings, and those hearings have to include lots of people from the suburbs that will supposedly be impacted. So so here we are on August 25th in our 15th year of public hearings, and this is what <laughs> Representative Nicole Maliadakis has to say. 
Uh, good evening, everyone. Can you guys hear me? Yes, we can. Okay, great. Uh, I want to thank you for putting together this comment period. Um, but I do believe that this uh, program is being jammed down the throats of the people that I represent and all New Yorkers. Um, and I think that there's more time and transparency that is needed to ensure that the consequences of this program are understood before its implementation. Uh, I understand that you guys did a shortcut here in terms of environmental impact. And uh, I believe that it needs to be a full, thorough environmental impact study um, and also an economic impact study to understand the consequences of what this will mean and the burden that it will place on our business community, on our residents, and on tourism. New York City is just getting back on its feet following the COVID pandemic. We are trying to get more people to come to our city. Um, and I think that this is gonna have a detrimental impact on that. And I think those consequences need to be understood considering that this is the first in the nation type program. Also, as it relates to congestion in our city center. And I understand your goal of wanting to uh, reduce congestion, but really this is also about revenue, let's be honest, right? There's always been this uh, war on cars approach, but there's always also been a need by the MTA to get more resources and revenue. Okay, I, <laughs> I want to make sure everybody heard. So there's a car revving in the background. You might have missed it. Did you hear it? Here it is. And I think that this is going to have a detrimental impact on that. And I think those consequences need to be understood. Nicole Maliotakis representative from Staten Island was calling in from a car. She was on a Zoom call from her car. Now, it wasn't moving as far as I could tell. She wasn't driving. She appeared to be maybe in a passenger seat, so nobody was at risk. But holy moly, like if you wanted a textbook definition of the windshield perspective, there you got it. And I also like her implication that this is sort of some veiled attempt to get revenue. This is not a veiled attempt. It is a quite deliberate policy decision that reducing congestion for drivers can happen. I'm sorry, I can't say it. Oh, no. I mean, it's like when people say that, you know, these speed cameras are just a, a program to punish drivers. Yes, yeah. they're a program to punish drivers who speed. The con The congestion pricing program is a is not to punish drivers, it is to raise revenue for transit and to discourage people from driving if they don't have to. Right, and, and, it, and when they say things like, you know, this is going to lead to fewer people driving into the city. Yes. Awesome. That is yes. what it is fewer for. Fewer metal boxes in the city. <laughs> right. Aaron, uh, you are, like me, a, a, an esteemed student, professor, scholar of oh, yeah. Bike Lash. There's a few things in here that I felt like just sounded like the typical oh, stuff that you hear at public meetings. Did any stick out to you? I mean, I, I appreciated her call for the, you know, studying the environmental impact of reducing driving. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> cares for the environment more than Republicans <laughs> who are told to drive less. Drive less. Yeah. You know, just but just that whole disingenuous line of argument, which unfortunately, like our environmental review system is actually set up to reinforce. Well, in, in San Francisco. Exactly. San Francisco was unable to build its citywide bike network in the early 2000s. There was like a four-year delay on that because the environmental impact statement showed that, you know, adding some bike lanes to certain streets might create more traffic congestion because these, these studies tend to assume that like every car that was driving on the bike lane street is just going to be displaced to the next adjacent street. 
which is not what happens. People make different decisions. But anyways, the, yeah, San Francisco could not build a bike network I for believe four it was, years. It was one person's litigation, one person's litigation. based yeah. on They that, weaponized yeah. it. Yep. Yeah, based on um, California's um, strict clean air rules. So that's what's happening here. You know, she is trying to weaponize, you know, environmental review against a program that would very clearly be good for the environment overall. There was also the jam down the throats of the people that oh, I represent. Yeah. You hear that language all the time, even though, like you said, congestion pricing has taken forever. It's gone through multiple layers of state government and city government. It's not being jammed down anyone's throats. The fact that she's actually there testifying against it is kind of proof that it's not. Sarah, you, I, I noticed that you laughed when she mentioned tourists, the effect on tourism. I mean, it, you know, this cracks me up because, because, of course, the tourists that we're trying to get back are from Europe and China and or from uh, Iowa or or from Iowa they they're not here. driving yeah. here and their experience of the city is going to be immeasurably enhanced in every way including their access to good transit to get around and see all the different things but also just being able to walk around being able to ride around on a city bike yeah. being a tourist in New York City is going to be so much nicer and Europeans the ones who I sometimes talk to who say, I liked being in New York, but it didn't feel comfortable or safe in certain places because of all the cars. Those people are going to feel much more at home. You here. know what tourists <laughs> love in New York City? Car-free Times Square, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. exactly. You mean they don't love like driving through Times Square to get to the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree? Right. You know, yeah, I mean, in their I mean, SUV. It's just like, right. that, it's just like, it would be the worst experience. It's, you know. Look, and even local tourists, there are all kinds of package deals with Broadway and the MTA where you can get like discount transit tickets and right. things like that. So most people who are coming into the city as tourists are not driving the Escalade from Times Square to Chinatown to Lower Manhattan to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. They're, they're not doing that. And if they are, they are should pay like a thousand dollars to yes, drive by yes, the Christmas. Yes. But you know what what kills me about this whole thing is when Sarah and I were starting Streets Blog 15 years ago, we were covering the congestion pricing hearings. <laughs> you know, this I know this, this process, was like we yeah. bonded over this. This stuff. has been going on forever and a slow jamming down people's yes, throats. <laughs> Whoever's jamming this down people's throats is doing Taking a terrible job. Time. Yeah. But the fact is like we see this again and again with like these kinds of you know transportation projects that you know, nobody really knows what congestion pricing is. Like, it is an abstraction right now. It doesn't, you know, unless you've been to London and you know what downtown London was like before congestion pricing and after, you really don't know what it is. And so it's very easy to demagogue it. It's very easy to scare people. And they do this with bike lanes. They do this with, you know, bike share. They do this with every transportation project. And we know that the only way to make these things work is to just put it on the ground, make it happen, test it out, let people see it more often than not, very much more often than not. People are like, wow, this is fantastic to be here, you know, on a safe bike lane or in a downtown with less car congestion. And, and it's the, the funny popular. thing with congestion pricing is unlike a bike lane or bike share where there's lots of equipment, like all there really is here is like cameras and tolling gates, right? Like, and, and those are, it's all automated now. It's not, it's license plate readers and things like that. So if it doesn't work, you can adjust the pricing up, you can adjust the pricing down, you can turn it off entirely. Move the boundaries. Right, you can expand the zone or make it, you know, make it smaller. So it, that experimentation, I feel like the yeah, American government in general just doesn't experiment. And right. so this is, and we're just stuck yelling at each other. 
I have to say that I have like literally not listened to a word of the congestion pricing coverage or debate. Like anytime I hear on the radio, like now we're going to have a call in about congestion pricing, just it. off. Like I, I actually think this is a problem because I think a lot of the advocates are like, yeah, we fought over this, like you know, from two thousand four to whatever year it passed, like two thousand nineteen or something. And I feel like people are just like, yeah, we won. We're done. We won it. Our, and it's like, no, like there's like a bunch of forces arrayed right now to try to kill it. <laughs> well, actually, for me, it's more like it's more of a PTSD. Thing, <laughs> <Right>. Actually, <laughs> you literally just like are keeping I yourself sane. I just can't. Sane. I can't. Yeah, I do think the left and liberals sometimes take for granted that like, yeah, it's a great idea. What? Who could be against less? you know, pollution, less traffic, things like that. Well, it turns out lots of people. Yeah. And you do have to keep fighting and fighting and fighting until the thing is in and proven and done. City bike is really the best example. Like until it was on the ground, you know, anybody could have said, nope, I don't want this. But then it was popular. Yeah. And I, and I worry about the benefits of this one. Like the benefits of city bike are really clear. Like you see people riding around on city bikes and they're like, wow, this is a great new way to get around the city. But the benefits of congestion pricing are a little bit more abstract and... Um, diffuse and it's like okay well the MTA is going to have more money to put into transit and it's like well oh well where's that am I going to get a new bus on my block am I going to you know no it's really going to go into the transit system as a whole and hopefully like it will be in a better state of repair but that's a bit you know it's not, not super specific what's not abstract is fewer cars yeah south of 60th street in Manhattan like if that happens it will be noticeable and people will like it because cars ruin cities, as we know, and having places where there are no cars or fewer cars is a tangible benefit. But, look that, at, but look it's at, so easy to demagogue that because it's like the wealthiest, so, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. fanciest part of the city and they're getting that benefit. Whereas like, all these, I see, you know what I, I mean? Well, you know what? I'm just, although the same people would argue that it's not a benefit. Right, that they're, <laughs> yeah. they're that they're being oppressed by having it there. Oh, so, exactly. I mean, they want to have it both ways. But I, I will say that the two of you have renewed my resolve to be strong and to listen to and participate in this debate again. Don't do it. No. <sighs> Believe me, there are times when I say, fuck it. I'm, I'm going to Disney World. <laughs> I'm getting out of here. Yeah. So on that note of renewed resolve to keep up the good fight... That is it for this episode of The War on Cars. We know that this episode is a little late for many of our listeners. We thank you so much for sticking with us as we all dealt with our various uh, tragedies and interruptions this summer. But uh, we'll be back with more and hopefully lots of great new episodes very soon. If you want to support The War on Cars, as always, go to thewaroncars.org. Click support us. Join today starting at just $3 per month and you'll get access to exclusive bonus content. We'll send you stickers. We want to say a really big thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. Starting Year 5 as a podcast is a pretty crazy thing to be doing and to really have it be a viable thing where we can bring you in-depth coverage and really substantive conversations with interesting people from around the world. I'm frankly just so grateful to be able to be doing this work and the more difficult things I've had to go through in the rest of my life, the more grateful I am for this place to come back to where you, our Patreon supporters and our listeners are here for this conversation. You're engaging in it with us. It's just incredibly personally meaningful to me. So I wanna say 
a big thank you to our Patreon supporters. And that includes our top supporters, Charlie G. of Human Powered Law in Portland, Oregon, the law office of Vaccaro and White in New York City, Virginia Baker, James Doyle, and Martin Mignot. We would also like to thank our good friends at Cleverhood who make just the best rain gear for walking and cycling. You, our listeners, can enjoy 20% off everything in the Cleverhood store. Go to cleverhood.com slash war on cars, enter code bike to school. That's bike to school spelled out all caps at checkout. Special thanks to our friends at Rad Power Bikes. Check out the latest sales at radpowerbikes.com slash war on cars. We've also got some great new merchandise in the store, especially for kids. There is a one less car seat onesie uh, and all kinds of t-shirts for toddlers and youth sizes. Um, That is some great back to school stuff. This episode was recorded by Josh Wilcox at the Brooklyn Podcasting Studio. It was edited by Ali Lemer. Our music is by Nathaniel Goodyear. Our logo is by Danny Finkel of Crucial D Designs. I'm Doug Gordon. I'm Aaron Napperstack. I'm Sarah Goodyear. And this is the War on Cars. <laughs>